This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from The David Packman Show, The Young Turks, Earth Justice, The Green News Report, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The White House Science Advisor, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Oxfam New Zealand, the official trailer for Disruption the Movie, and Activism from Best of the Left. We told you the story in February about Duke Energy and the 39,000 tons of toxic coal slurry that gushed into a major North Carolina river. At the time, we also told you that Duke Energy, if they were forced to move out of those areas, said very upfront uh, that they would pass on the costs of the cleanup to their customers. So as usual... The uh, capitalist system works really well for the profits and then, of course, socializing the social costs and cleanup costs. So now they've cleaned about 3,000 tons worth of the toxic coal slurry and they've issued a press release saying that the cleanup has been completed. 92%, of course, of the heavy metal-filled and possibly radioactive coal ash is still coating 70 miles of river bottom. And river advocates are understandably frustrated. The argument that Duke Energy is making is that now the stuff has settled and has even been covered by the riverbed. So now you're actually going to further disturb it. If you try to clean it up, you're better off just leaving it there. Of course, actual scientists indicate that just leaving it there is not like uh, undisturbed asbestos, where it's just going to sit unless someone takes a hammer to it, that actually just because of the currents and because of other weather conditions, this stuff is going to be stirred up. It is going to get, uh, it's going to start flowing. Animals in the river will start eating it, and it will work its way up the food chain. 92% of the coal ash slurry remains, and Duke Energy Lewis says, we're done here. Incredible. Uh, incredible to think that they could get away with this, too. Uh, it just They're just too powerful. Companies like this have too much leverage. Lewis, don't worry. The free market is going to take care of this because big businesses have the inherent incentive to regulate themselves to make sure that exactly what is happening doesn't happen. Thank you. Uh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> uh, the other thing I was thinking was they want to frack. They want to keep fracking all over the place here. And the, uh, meanwhile, they still leave 92% of the first disaster uh, not cleaned up and say, let's just not touch it. It's fine. It's covered in sediment. I really trust these companies. I think that they, they are the people we should listen to. You're trusting me in all you do. So in West Virginia, we had a terrible case of chemicals uh, leaking into the water supply, into the river nearby. And 300,000 people had their drinking water poisoned and could not drink the water for uh, several days. Okay, now a lot of people got sick. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. Uh, first of all, understand that the company that did this is called Freedom Industries. 
Apparently, freedom isn't free, right? It costs you and your family a lot of uh, money, time, energy, resources if you're in West Virginia. In fact, one in five people reported health issues after the chemical spill. Now, think about that. 300,000 people, one in five, do the math real quick, uh, looks to be about 60,000 people reporting health issues. Okay, that's got a high uh, price tag attached to it. By the way, they did a study at uh, Marshall University. And this is just of the businesses affected, let alone the human beings, the private citizens who were affected in West Virginia. It cost $61 million to that community in terms of the business cost, okay? Now, how serious was it? Well, OSHA finally looked into it. Before, by the way, uh, the accident, OSHA never inspected this facility. <laughs> you know how Republicans are always complaining, oh, over-regulation! In this case, no regulation. They never looked at the facility at all until they had already spilled the poison into the water. Okay. Now, afterwards, they look into it and they say inspectors classified both of those citations, the two citations that they got, as, quote, serious, meaning the workplace hazards could cause an accident or illness that would most likely result in death or serious physical harm. Boy, that does sound serious. So after they uh, recognize that, those two citations, well, they let them have it. They find them. You know how much? $11,000. $61 million in damage, tens of thousands of people injured, right? Nobody can drink the water for days on end. It's an absolute disaster over there. An $11,000 fine? Are you kidding me? That is a joke on the American people. Like, imagine if Al-Qaeda had poisoned the water in West Virginia. We might declare war over it. When an American company called Freedom Industries does it, $11,000. What a sad joke. $7,000 for keeping chemicals in dike areas that were not liquid tight. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, you got them. And $4,000 for not providing employees with proper hand railing to walk over the storage dikes as they went on to spill the poison into the water. There are no winners in this story. Uh, Freedom Industries is a mess. They've declared uh, bankruptcy. Uh, but for God's sake, the point is to deter other people to make sure that they are careful so they don't poison the local communities. An $11,000 fine is not sufficient to do that when you affected 300,000 people and cost at least $61 million. You see, what this is, is privatizing the gains, because before they declared bankruptcy, Freedom Industries made plenty of money and they put it all in their pocket. Did they share it with the people of West Virginia? No. Did they share it with taxpayers? No. Did they share it with you? No. Okay, they put it in their pocket. And then after they do the damage, well, sad day for you. That those $61 million in costs, everything else, the health costs, you're going to bear that. That's socializing the losses. You privatize the gains, socialize the losses. It's not that they don't like socialism. Just as with the big bankers on Wall Street, they love socialism when it comes to their losses. Profits are for them. They buy off the government so they don't get any regulation. Again, whether it's Wall Street or this a situation with chemicals, right, in the water. But afterwards, oh, they love the government. After they cause an enormous mess, they say, government, give me, give me, give me, give me. Then all of a sudden, they love big government. They love socialism. They love crony capitalism. They either take a huge amount, as the bankers did in their bailout, or in this case, pay a comical, ridiculous fine, $11,000. That's insult to injury. That's spitting in every person's eye that got affected in West Virginia. This is what happens when you don't regulate. 
of course they're going to take more risks. Of course they're going to try to save five bucks here and ten bucks there. And then when the damage is done, it's done to you, not them. They don't give a damn. Now you think, oh, well, the damage was done to them too. They went bankrupt. They didn't personally go bankrupt. Every executive that worked there all those years got the money anyway. They have it in their pockets. They already went home. <laughs> the only damage is to you. Wake up, man. That's why we need the government, which is the representative, supposed to be the representative of us, the people. Remember, that's the whole point of our democracy. To represent us and to protect us so they don't poison the water that our kids drink. Remember the story from West Virginia of the flammable, licorice-smelling uh, water that you were supposed to avoid even having touch your skin because of uh, how uh, tainted it was. It was, of course, connected to fracking. We now have more bad news regarding groundwater and fracking, this time from uh, uh, Washington County, Pennsylvania. Leaks of fracking wastewater have now tainted and contaminated soil and groundwater, prompting the state to issue a violation notice at one site and continue monitor monitoring the water at other sites. The impoundments store flowback and wastewater from multiple Marcellus shale well drilling and fracking operations. It will take 30 to 45 days to get the results of the additional testing, which will try to determine whether there's a kind of plume of contamination in the groundwater. It's amazing to me, Lewis, that now we have a 30 to 45 day period where we're just kind of waiting how safe is the groundwater? Is the soil contaminated? Is the water fully contaminated? Is this contaminated in the sense of you don't want to drink it at all? Or if you boil it, then it's okay to drink? Is it the type of thing where you shouldn't even be showering with this water? And 30 to 45 days now we have to wait. There should be a flat-out moratorium, full stop, on fracking at this point. Of course, uh, nationwide, uh, there is no good. It comes from it, and if if you want to talk about the jobs it creates, and uh, I don't know the, how it injects money into the uh, economy, um, we can have that discussion. If you don't care about what it's doing to the people of your country and the environment, and I read this line, and it reminded me actually of the Deepwater Horizon uh, uh, oil spill, and I'll read it to you. Mr. Genuso said the three impoundments were constructed incorrectly because their leak detection systems are beneath dual liners instead of between liners, meaning that the leaks in the upper liner aren't detected until the ground is contaminated. It's different from the Deepwater Horizon situation where a $500,000 valve that could have prevented the entire blowout wasn't used in order to save money. We don't know for sure that in this case... They have the two liners. They were just improperly built, so it doesn't seem, or, or, or placed. It doesn't seem like it's a cost issue. 
it's an incompetence issue uh, uh, or, or, or an oversight. And again, this could have been prevented. never get tired of looking at this valley. Um, it, it took me about 10 years to stop having the hair raise on my arm when I came over the hill and, you know, would catch sight of the farm. It's just so gorgeous. And this is what we'd lose, of course. There was somebody here who wanted to talk to us about leasing the land for gas drilling. I just said, no, not interested. Tell him to go away. Then he started writing us letters and calling on the phone and showing up at the door. He said, look, I know that you've been telling me to go away, but I need you to know that all of your neighbors have signed. All of the land around you is leased. So whether you sign the lease or not, we will come in here and take the gas. And so I did. I signed their lease. Uh, it took me another six months to find out what I had done. What had you done? I had, oh, uh, Right in New York, where Marie McRae lives, sits atop an oil and gas deposit that stretches from New York to Alabama. The company that leased her land planned to drill it with a process known as hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, a process that's currently driving a drilling boom all across America. While fracking produces profit for some, Marie learned that it also produces pollution, industrial explosions, earthquakes, and changed communities. She also learned that she wasn't the only person being approached. This property became available. We came across this, and it was perfect. It was right where we wanted it to be, perfect place for us to build a home. When I was citing to build our house, uh, a young gentleman came up to me in the field and he came to me in a very friendly manner and I said, how can I help you? And he said, I'm going to make your day. And I knew at that point that if he was talking to me, he was most certainly talking to my neighbors. So when I met Marie McRae at a meeting, she took me aside and said, did you know that beautiful home that you're building is now in the midst of a gas development zone? And I said, I don't really know what that means, but I'm sure you're going to teach me. There were people who were organizing educational forums for the public where I learned about 
high volume hydraulic fracturing. Every little bit of information that I got was worse than what I had known before. We started working together, I, I would say, at least two or three times a week in the early days and deciding, well, what are we going to do, what can we do, and what are our options? Because the industry kept telling us, we have the power, you have none, we are coming, get out of the way or leave. You not know exactly who they are, and you may not know who And we were like is. deer in the headlights, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to do. They're telling us we don't have a choice. And here comes two attorneys, New Yorkers, who said, you most certainly do have a choice, but you have to act very quickly. There was this general perception that fracking was coming, there was nothing you could do, there was this oncoming train wreck, you knew it was going to be a train wreck, and you couldn't even get out of the way. From our background, uh, having been corporate lawyers, our thinking was, there has to be something you can do. You don't keep a job as a corporate lawyer telling your clients, no, they can't do something. Like, you find a way for them to do what they want to do. So we started looking at this, like, well, so what can you do? They say you can't regulate the industry, so what's a regulation? As we looked and started researching this idea of, well, what's a regulation? It became clear in New York that a land use prohibition was not considered to be a regulation of an industry. So we were like, well, it looks like you could prohibit this, which was sort of an emperor has no clothes moment. It was like, well, we can't regulate it, but we can say no. Like, that's pretty good. Like, <laughs> we'll take that. But nobody had said that. All the other, the big national groups that said no, that wasn't what it meant. The landmen said no, that wasn't what it meant. Cooperative Extension said no, that wasn't what it meant. And we were two lawyers from Ithaca, and we're like, well, we disagree with everyone. <laughs> it was sort of like this little glimmer of hope that came out. It's like, wow, you mean there might be something we can do at a local level? So that glimmer of hope really brought this team together, and we said, okay, how do we do this? And we met with David and Helen, and they said, you know, they're doing the same thing in a neighboring town, Ulysses and they're doing it with a petition drive. So start a petition drive. We went door to door, talking to our neighbors, talking to people we'd never met. And then we have folks on our team like Martha Ferger, who's 88 years old, and she knows everybody. What she did was sit at her table with the phone and called everybody she knew and told them they had to come to her house and sign this petition. And it's amazing, she got the most number of signatures. We sort of made it a challenge as well, and Joe Wilson did this. Every evening, Joe would send an email, I got this number of signatures today, how many did you get? On the night that we announced it to the town board, we were able to walk into that town board meeting with a stack of petitions. We had something to give them that they could see that we meant business, and so did everybody who signed that. Um, knowledge is, is king, and, and we certainly received a lot of knowledge when it came to, uh, to that issue. There's only 14,000 people in Brighton, so one in ten people in Dryden signed that petition. 
it was it was pretty amazing. And there were enough signatures to win an election. And that's what made our board pay attention. I'm a Republican. Uh, I was born Republican, and uh, I, I, I will continue to be a Republican. I represent the people of the town of Dryden. Uh, that's not a, a party. I am a loyal Democrat. I'm a proud Democrat. I represent everyone in town, not just the people who voted for me. After receiving the petition, holding a public comment period, and debating through hours of meetings, the board scheduled a vote to decide whether or not the town would allow fracking. I think each board member would say that they really did not absolutely make up their minds until that night. And right up until the day that we were there at that meeting, we were not 100% sure that we had unanimous votes. When a vote is called, uh, each town board member has to respond individually down the line, and each one of them said, Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, we will ban this. Um, my voice by itself carries very little weight, but when I join my voice with my immediate neighbors, with the larger community uh, that I live in, we all together have a voice that's loud enough for our elected officials to hear. Every community across this nation can do exactly what Dryden did. You have to care about each other. That is the American dream, right? Yeah, that's the American dream. You count on your neighbor. More than 170 communities in New York have joined Dryden and passed bans or moratoriums on fracking. Communities in Colorado, Pennsylvania, Texas, Ohio, and California have also taken action. Six weeks after Dryden's vote, a billionaire-owned company sued to overturn the ban. Dryden leaders came to Earth Justice for legal representation. With the help of Earth Justice attorneys, Dryden has won two rounds in court. Its ban remains on the books. The case heads to New York's highest court in the spring of 2014. If Dryden wins, it will set a statewide precedent and bolster efforts in communities across the country. To learn more, visit earthjustice.org. Historic deluges and dangerous flash floods breaking records across the eastern half of the U.S. this week, demonstrating the multiple, serious, and expensive impacts of global warming that are increasingly overwhelming our aging infrastructure.
in Detroit. The ground came up and I just remember screaming at him saying that we got to go. It's not safe. A record deluge caused historic flooding in the Motor City on Monday that turned highways into rivers, killing two people, and also backed up the city's sewage system into the streets. Days later, divers are still searching for victims in completely submerged cars. In Nebraska... A hospital security camera caught the power and speed of a massive flash flood that burst through the doors of the hospital with the speed and force of a tsunami. Several cities, from Arizona to Massachusetts, saw record flooding, but none so much as the Long Island town of Islip in New York State, which recorded 13 inches of rain in just three hours, unprecedented in state history. When was the last time you've seen it this bad? I actually worked during a Hurricane Sandy, and it's been that kind of day. Islip broke the New York State record for heaviest rainfall in a one-day period that was set during Hurricane Irene. But this was not a hurricane. No, this was just uh, Wednesday. Right. Now, why is this happening all at once? Why is this happening all at once? Funny you should ask. NBC News reports its changes in the jet stream. According to a recent study, extreme weather is due to a rise in blocking patterns. That's when hot or wet weather stays stuck over a region for an extended period of time. Most scientists are not surprised. They've actually seen this coming for a while. We've seen these type of blocking weather patterns almost double in the last decade. We've seen it coming for a while. We've talked about it on this show for a while. Scientists have been warning about it for a very long time, all during which the denialists out there have just been ignoring it as if there's nothing to see here, no concerns. Right, and of course, good for NBC for mentioning that increase in blocking patterns, making extreme weather events more common. So a blocking pattern is basically what? Melting sea ice in the Arctic is changing the atmospheric air temperature. That's changing the jet stream, slowing it down, and that's what causes these blocking patterns. So the systems stall, they can't move across the country as they normally would. Instead, they get blocked in place and just drop all of this water in one place? Yep, but what NBC didn't tell you was the rest of the story. That new study also concluded that human-caused global warming is driving that increase in blocking patterns and extreme weather events. A man named Ed Fallon and many others are walking across the entire United States to bring attention to climate change. They call it the Great March for Climate Action, but I'm sure some of you are thinking, that's stupid, why walk across the country when you could call attention to climate change in other ways? For example, this image of a grumpy cat. <laughs> that guy's... that guy's bigger than Elvis, by the way. Or you could take this video, which went viral. I smell like beef. I smell like beef. I... <laughs> and just alter it slightly. I smell like greenhouse gases. I smell like greenhouse gases. Boom! Attention paid, right? Can I have attention? Yes, you can. 
But the marchers are doing this in order to see firsthand how climate change is impacting people across the country. The marchers have seen deluges in Los Angeles, blinding dust storms in Arizona, drought in New Mexico, and crop-crushing hail in Colorado. Some people act like the climate marchers are crazy. Yet, Americans will stand in line for days for a new iPhone. We'll camp out in tents to get a better deal at Best Buy. We'll beat the living out of a grandmother in a Walmart on Christmas Eve in front of Santa just to get 20% off an Xbox. So, so why aren't people willing to do something heroic for climate change? This is the civil rights march of our time. And I'm uniquely suited to say that because I'm a privileged white male. <laughs> this is incredibly important, and the science is not up for debate. Out of 13,950 peer-reviewed climate articles between 1991 and 2012, 24 of them reject global warming. That little red line, that's it. And of those 24, 19 of those papers were written in puffy paint. So why is this? Why is there no media coverage of anything about climate change? I mean, NBC's Meet the Press, one of the most well-known Sunday news shows, mentioned climate change exactly none during all of 2013, and that's where we're supposed to get to go to meet the press. So the press is like your, the press is like your friend with a thing growing on its face, and you have to tell people, "Don't mention the thing on his face; it, it gets weird." So now with the press, we have to go, "Don't mention climate change, or it gets weird." But as we know, with Occupy and the civil rights marches and the labor struggles of the past, there is one thing that garners attention from the nation: protesters getting beaten and arrested. So I'm calling right now for all of you out there to take time from your precious, comfortable lives, your manicured lawns and your pedicured dogs. Take one minute to stop thinking about yourselves and instead beat up a climate change marcher. All right? If you care about the planet, the planet, your kids will inherit, then you'll do it. Or you could take the loser path of actually becoming one of the marchers. Just go to www.climatemarch.org to learn more. While no single wildfire can be said to have been caused by climate change, climate change has been making the fire season in the United States longer and, on average, more intense. I'm John Holdren, President Obama's science advisor, here to talk about climate change and wildfires, a topic that's on the mind of many who are grappling with tragic losses from the recent spate of uncontrolled fires in the northwestern United States and Canada. The influence of climate change on the wildfire regime comes not just from the higher summer temperatures and reduced summer soil moisture that go with global warming. Climate change is also bringing us more dead trees, kindling in effect, killed by a combination of heat stress, water stress, and attacks by pests and pathogens that multiply faster in a warmer world. The National Climate Assessment released in May tells us, consistent with earlier studies, that longer, hotter, drier summers are projected to continue to increase the frequency and the intensity of large wildfires in the United States. 
In the western United States, the average annual area burned by large wildfires has increased several fold in recent decades. The evidence is strong that climate change is responsible, at least in part, for this increase. And the West is not the only U.S. region affected by wildfire. Today, the southeastern United States leads the nation in number of wildfires, averaging 45,000 fires per year, and this number continues to increase. And nationwide, the eight worst years on record in terms of area burned have all occurred since the year 2000. Wildfires, of course, are dangerous to human life and health, costly in terms of property loss, and generally harmful to ecosystems. They destroy valuable timber and wildlife, as well as homes and other built infrastructure. They promote soil erosion. They increase the risk from floods and landslides. And the damage can extend far beyond the location of the fire itself, through the impact of the smoke plume on air quality far downwind and the destruction of downstream fisheries choked with silt eroded from slopes denuded by fire. In short, wildfires accentuated by climate change are putting communities, lives, health, jobs, and valuable natural resources at risk. I encourage you to learn more about the science of this issue by visiting whitehouse.gov slash climate change. The Washington Post editorial page is upset that, as they declared August 25th, quote, national debate on climate change has devolved, close quote. While there was at one point hope that politicians would accept the science and move towards some real solutions, quote, a faction that rejects the science of global warming dragged the GOP into irresponsible head-in-the-sandism, close quote. Well, huh, readers may wonder, how did that happen? Did it have anything at all to do with the regular platform those science rejectors are given on the Washington Post editorial page? Some of the most high-profile climate deniers, George Will, Charles Krauthammer, and Robert Samuelson, are all post-columnists. Samuelson's position has evolved somewhat. Years ago, he scoffed that it's, quote, politically incorrect to question whether this is a serious problem that serious people ought to take seriously, close quote. He now says there's enormous uncertainty around what climate changes, for good or ill, might bring. Krauthammer calls climate science superstition and climate scientists white-coated propagandists. And George Will famously explained that what people thought was warming was just summertime, and they should get over it. The page has also gifted its readers with the musings of noted climate expert Sarah Palin. It's good news, then, that the Post has decided to take science seriously. But if we're to take them seriously about the shape of the climate debate, perhaps they could talk a bit about what their paper's columnists have done to warp it which, P.S., they have no plans to stop. 
As editorial page editor Fred Hyatt told Media Matters' Joe Strupp, quote, I'm more inclined to take op-eds that challenge our editorials than just kind of join the chorus, close quote. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Uh, this is going to be, I think, a fairly big news in the um, coming months. And I imagine uh, it might be in the articles of impeachment that the Republicans will uh, tender in the coming months. The Obama administration is working uh, to forge a, according to the New York Times, a sweeping international climate change agreement to compel nations to cut their planet-warming fossil fuel emissions, but without ratification from Congress. It's to be signed at the United Nations Summit meeting in 2015 in Paris. Negotiators are meeting now with diplomats. The idea is, because there's no way to ratify an agreement like this in the Senate, particularly if the Republicans take the Senate in the fall, but either way, it would need a 67-vote ratification. The idea is that they will not create a legally binding agreement, but a politically binding one. Many people's first reaction will be, this is weak tea. Unfortunately, it's the only tea at this point that can happen internationally because we cannot pass a legally binding treaty in this country. American negotiators are honing in on a hybrid agreement, a proposal to blend legally binding conditions from an existing 1992 treaty with new voluntary pledges. It would ultimately update that 92 treaty and not require a vote of ratifications. Countries would be legally required to enact domestic climate change policies, but would voluntarily pledge to specific levels of emission cuts and to channel money to poor countries to help them adapt to climate change. I mean, this may be just the best that we can do. This time 
just wanted to point you to a website. This is some rather startling news. Uh, it's over at arctic-news.blogspot.com. It's one of my favorite websites for news about what's going on in the Arctic and, and with regard to global warming. And uh, Sam Carena, I think is how he says his last name, uh, C-A-R-A-N-A, has just posted a, uh, uh, a new post based on the most recent NASA data about the melting of ice on land and its contribution to the rise of, of the oceans, of sea level. And, you know, this prediction that by 2100, which is, what, roughly 80 years from now, 85 years from now, that by 2100 we might see a two, three, four, five-foot sea level rise, which would, you know, re- <laughs> it would reshape the, uh, the, the, the coasts of, well, every continent in the, on Earth. For us here, it would cut Manhattan in half. It would take out a good chunk of Washington, D.C. It would take out about half of Florida, all this kind of thing. That's assuming a linear rise. In other words, that every year the rise follows the exact same percentage. So you get 1% this year or 100th of 1% this year, 100th of 1% next year, 100%. But Sam Carina did the math and graphed it on the actual NASA data. And it looks like it's turning this, this curve, this graph, it looks like it's turning into what's called a polynomial curve which is where it sweeps up very, very rapidly. It's what we're seeing, what we've seen with carbon dioxide with the 400 parts per minute, per million. It's like it's, it's just started exploding, and it looks like the loss of sea ice. And so he's saying that the 2100 numbers might actually be achieved by 2040, 25 years from now. Now, I probably won't be around to see that, but most people alive today will. And... That's pretty amazing. And all I know is the sun is shining, yet we fight all through the night. While the bergs are melting and the sea is rising, I don't know, so I ask my wife. And all I know is the sun is shining, yet we fight all through the night. Well, if you don't know, shit, and I don't know, I guess all we can do is ask my I can say the impact of global warming to my people is real. Being the smallest, meaning being the first one to be drowned. Some small islands are disappear. It's not just the sea level rise that is going to impact the Pacific. It's a higher intensity and frequency of storms. It's contamination of safe water supplies. It's not being able to grow crops. It's not having strong communities for the future. Every time I hear the word climate change, three things comes to my mind. Injustice, inequality, and discrimination. Why should we pay the small islands in the Pacific? The Pacific islands contribute less 
um, to the gas emissions globally, and yet they are the ones who are being affected first. I feel for, for my people over there. It's not fair for people in the Pacific. I think it's a crime that, um, that those people should, should pay anything. It's unreasonable, it's heartbreaking that these people have to leave their homes, which is the forcible relocation of people to land bases that they have no genealogical connection with, no cultural connection with, um, basically stripping them of their land-based identities, which is very difficult not only on those people who have to move, but also on the people that have to accommodate them. We're scared to get back and we want to stay here with my family. We're talking about people's lives here. We're talking about our livelihood. We're talking about our identity, our language, our culture. That is very important to us because that's a connection that we do have with our land. Many Pacific Island nations are responding to the issue of rising sea levels very actively and assertively. They are going well beyond the status quo and creating really good solution-focused climate action. A developed country is not a place where the poor have cars, but it's a place where the rich ride public transportation. That's the kind of world I want to see. I think we could do more to stop climate change. Aotearoa people have always had a concern about other people's dilemma. We need to stand together as a region. We are all Pacific people and we all owe it to our brothers and sisters to take action. To secure and to protect the small islands and especially our world. We need to start putting in place policies that will actually legislate the um, reduction of carbon emissions and we need to have a strategy about where those reductions are going to come from. So not just targets, but we need strategy. It is about time for us people to stand up and speak for all rights. I feel happy that people are trying to help. What is lacking is the political and corporate willpower. So what it takes is you and me and all of our friends to stand together and say, hey, we care about this, so we can hold our decision makers to account for the issues that are important to us. And climate change is a really important issue. We need to act on climate change before this is a common story for every single person on the earth. It's never too late to make a change. It's never too late to make change. It's never too late to make change. It's never too late to make a change. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
so they did a fascinating poll, uh, Pew Research did. They asked scientists, what party are you with? Let's find out. Uh, Republican? Mm, not so much. Uh, the public overall is 23% Republican. Isn't that interesting? I thought this was a center-right country. Hmm, doesn't look like it. 35% are Democrat and 34% are independent. Doesn't look very Republican country. Anyway, but when you go to scientists, you have a totally different uh, set of numbers. Only 6% of scientists say that they are Republicans. 55% say Democrat, 32% say independent. When you get more specific and they ask, which way do you lean? Only 12% of the scientists lean uh, Republican or are Republican. And 81% are either Democrat or lean Democrat. <laughs> By the way, the theory that uh, Republicans have about this, yeah, these scientists, it's a worldwide conspiracy. That's why they get money from the government to say that climate change is happening and that maybe females didn't come from the rib of Adam, which is obviously true, okay? Instead, they talk about evolution. Of course, that's not true. What a conspiracy. I don't know why scientists don't vote Republican. Can't quite figure it out. Maybe your party doesn't believe in science and says it over and over again. That might be a good clue why not a lot of scientists vote for you. And if you're on the side of the issue where you're against scientists, against science, which, by the way, is just our best efforts to collect facts and information and knowledge, don't you have to kind of wonder if you're on the right side? If you look around, you're like, okay, it's this room versus that room. That room has all the scientists. My room has all the idiots. Which side should I be on? Which room? Which room? Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to stay right here. This is a good room. <laughs> all right. You stay right there. But it shows, by the way, even uh, when you look at the general public in America, not a lot of people staying in that Republican room. It's kind of a scary room. It's official. July 2014 was the fourth warmest July on record globally, following the world's hottest June on record. And we're now on track for 2014 to be the third hottest year on record, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Wait, June was the hottest on record globally? Yep. July is only the fourth hottest on record globally? Yep. The globe is cooling. You're welcome, <laughs> GOP. Well, hardly. To top it off, the world's oceans are now at the highest temperature ever recorded and have remained there for the third straight month. But don't expect any action on climate change from Washington anytime soon. Oh, I don't. Soon. I don't. We've reported before on Republicans' remarkable flip-flop on climate change since the 2008 presidential campaign. Yeah, here are some familiar Republican voices from before the 2008 presidential election. I believe that man's activities certainly can be contributing to the issue of global warming, climate change. You're seeing climate change. I think human activity is contributing to it. The fact is, is that we have had climate change. 
Uh, they're, clearly, humans have something to do with it. That was then. This is now. Here's how Speaker John Boehner again. Well, listen, I'm not going to, I'm not qualified to debate the science over climate change. Well, now, Bloomberg News reports this week that many Republicans privately say they accept the scientific evidence of human caused climate change and the need to act, but they are afraid to say so publicly, fearing a backlash from their extremist Tea Party base. Bloomberg interviewed dozens of current and former Republican politicians and lobbyists. They admitted off the record that Republicans won't feel free to speak about climate change until, quote, the Tea Party loses some of its power to influence elections or a severe weather event forces serious discussion of the issue. Very, very courageous of them. You can smell the perfume of death lying on the ground. Killing in our modern world, it doesn't make any sound. People take their pleasure in causing suffering and pain. big social movements in history have had people in the streets. We as a people will get to the promised land. All of us must stand up together. We will not go home and be quiet. We will go home and organize. In our past, masses of people have taken the wheel of history and turned it. We have a responsibility to rise to our historical moment. This is the singular issue of our time that will determine how we live, where we live, and if we live. The scientific warnings keep intensifying, yet there has been no effective political response. The tipping points that we face are a catastrophic shift that threatens everything we love, and it happens like that. Each day of inaction, of business as usual, puts us closer and closer on this crash course. Climate disruption is a social justice issue. Who gets hit first and worst every time? What my country is going through as a result of this climate event is madness. This is not just about the environment. It's about the community. It's about jobs. It's about justice. This is not a green issue. This is an all of us issue. This is going to have to be the fight of our lives. It's communities of people coming together that will solve this. The most faithful battle in human history, we will fight it together. There is no replacement for human bodies. Standing as one, voices raised as one, making a political demand. Died. You who believed you were better than them Who 
sat in the flower, ignoring the stem. You denied them doctors and care, humanity's basics, as if death were their share. You denied the struggles of most, like a pig you consumed and like a pig you will roast as we stand. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the People's Climate March. This is an invitation to change everything. That's how the People's Climate March opens their event description. Definitely an attention grabber. Considering the intransigence of Congress and the deceptiveness of the White House on energy, the strategy of these organizers to go above and around our government straight to the United Nations Climate Summit is a solid one if they want to achieve that goal. Salvaging our climate is going to take international effort and the folks behind these events already underway and the final march to the September 21st Summit in New York City are definitely organizing on an international scale. With more than 950 organizations around the world signing on, the upcoming People's Climate March is a true collaborative effort. There are the expected sponsors, 350.org, the SEIU, fossil fuel opposition organizations, Move to Amend, and also local and minority-led social justice groups like Alaska Wilderness League, All African People's Revolutionary Party, Reform Temple of Forest Hills, the Rabbinical Assembly, and more. Basically, if you're a human and you care about a thing, you are represented among the groups backing the People's Climate March. The UN summit has an ambitious goal of its own, one we should be supporting. Yes, there are plenty of issues to take with the United Nations, but as with any governing body, when they aim to achieve vital objectives such as, quote, a global agreement to dramatically reduce global warming pollution, unquote, we must be visibly behind the effort. Peoplesclimate.org has a list of hub sites where you can join the march and ways to contribute using your specific skill set as well as resources in 12 languages. To help you gear up for the march, the previous clip you just heard was the trailer for Disruption Climate Change, which is scheduled for free screenings on September 7th. Through exploration and interviews with people like Naomi Klein, Chris Hayes, Van Jones, and more, the filmmakers seek to answer the question, when it comes to climate change, why do we do so little when we know so much? Visit watchdisruption.com to see the trailer and find out where you can go near you to see the film with a group of people who care about this issue. Then on September 21st, if there's any chance you can make it to the march in New York, plan to be there. Information on transportation to the march from 35 states plus Canada, as well as lodging information for New York, can be found at peoplesclimate.org. If you can't make it in person, follow the hashtag peoplesclimate. But if you're there, be sure to tag Best of Left on social media and help us help you amplify what could be the largest action on behalf of an inhabitable climate in history. The organizers conclude their invitation to join this way, quote, With our future on the line and the whole world watching, we'll take a stand to bend the course of history. We'll take to the streets to demand the world we know is within our reach. A world with an economy that works for people and the planet. A world safe from the ravages of climate change. A world with good jobs, clean air and water, and healthy communities.
Hi, Jay. This is Lauren calling from Ontario, Canada, and I wanted to make some comments in response to Wade's uh, concerns about the word privilege that you mentioned in your last podcast and your comment that people have a block when they hear about the concept of privilege, that it feels like an attack on them as though people are calling them a racist. The reason I'm calling is because I had objections to the word privilege that uh, were really similar to Wade's, and uh, what he was saying reminded me of uh, what I was thinking in the past when I heard people talking about privilege, but that's because, as I came to realize, because I was thinking of privilege in terms of some people having something others don't, and that's normal and not necessarily unfair. Uh, my issues with the term privilege uh, more or less cleared up when I gave some thought to what the word specifically means. If uh, you look into it, the word privilege uh, comes from the root the privy, which means private, and uh, legium, means law, from Latin. Uh, privilege means private law, in other words, a law for or against an individual. It's when one person is able to have a set of expectations of how they will be treated or what they will be able to do that doesn't apply to others, or where there are different rules or expectations for different people within a society. And the U.S. was founded in opposition to inherited privilege and in favor of one law for all. So while there will always be differences between people, uh, addressing the issue of white privilege, of, of the way that uh, white people are able to go through life with without realizing that they have different expectations from the ones that uh, apply to other uh, other groups in society. Addressing that issue helps bring American society closer to living out the meaning of its creed. So, love the show, Jay. Thank you very much. Hi, Jay. I'm calling from Seattle. I just wanted to say I liked Wade's comment about how once he hears the term white privilege, he just pulls everything else out. Um, not because I agree with it, because, but because it does help in terms of knowing how to approach a conversation with someone. I do have to disagree with you on the bike analogy, though, and uh, here's why. I don't think that most people disagree that black people are subjected to a different experience than white people in America. The problem is that people think it's justified. So to respond to the bike analogy, someone could easily say, well, you could have the same rights as a car. All you have to do is get off the bike and start driving a car like the rest of us. Why should we have to accommodate your behavior? So basically, to continue that analogy, black people in America are as different from white people as black cars are from white cars, but we're treated like bicycles. And so you can see where the analogy starts to fall apart, and that's the problem. We're seen as deserving of the treatment that we get because many see us as inherently different from quote-unquote normal people. They do think we are as different as a BMX is from a BMW, even though all we're really talking about is a different code of fame. So that's I just wanted to chime in there. So thanks for the show. And I just kind of recently started tuning in again after a little lapse, just because I kind of wanted to remind myself that there are like-minded people out there um, after everything that happened in Ferguson. So thanks again. Hi, Jay. This is James from Canada. I just finished listening to your last episode. I really wanted to say I enjoyed listening to the analogy about white privilege using bike riders uh, and their rights, privileges, and the general perception of them on the roads in relation to uh, cars. Um, as a sometimes oppressed electric scooter rider, I can completely relate. 
lots of these examples really hit home, particularly cars zooming past me just inches away, most probably not even realizing how nerve-wracking that is for me. Um, that said, the analogy was apt, but not apt enough. Maybe it's the best one we've got, but it leaves out one important detail. If I don't like it, I can just get in my car and start driving to work instead of using my scooter. Then I can immediately join the privileged side and start having all the systemic biases work for me instead of against me. It goes without saying, of course, that a person of color can't simply just decide to start being white. So yes, the analogy was solid, but it still isn't perfect because it compares people who, to some degree, have chosen to join an oppressed minority and people who were born into it and have no way out. Your thoughts? Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just as I suspected, the uh, the analogy that I, I laid out in the previous episode has started a really interesting conversation. I'm not at all surprised to hear that there are people who have a problem with it. Uh, I, I think the caller from Seattle is not going to be the only one. I, I heard from Katie, you know, real soon after posting that uh, episode that she had heard it before and had heard from plenty of people saying, oh, yeah, that's not a great analogy. But we can sort of dive into it and, and have it be uh, sort of educational in its imperfections. So as I said before reading the analogy in the first place, all analogies are imperfect. And so it's not surprising that this one is as well. And the callers have nailed like the biggest problem with this one, which is choice. You know, generally speaking, theoretically, if you're commuting by bicycle and not by car, that's a choice. And if you're commuting by car and not by bicycle, that's a choice. There are probably cases when that is not true, you know, people who can't afford a car and so on. But be that as it may, we will grant the issue that, yes, people can choose how they commute. They cannot choose their race at all. So no gray area there. So, But let's pretend just for a moment that people could choose to be black. Let's like flip it rather than attacking the analogy. Let's say like what if the world functioned fundamentally differently and people could choose to be black? Uh, how would that change how we feel about race relations and, and racism and so on. And I, I say that because it reminds me of the LGBT rights arguments. And, you know, I, I can remember from when I was a kid that a lot of people would argue that if it was a choice, then it was okay to have a problem with it. But if it wasn't a choice and somehow scientists could prove that it wasn't a choice, well, then I guess we'd all have to be okay with it. And, you know, when I was 13, that made sense to me. And I thought, well, it's clearly not a choice. So I'm in favor of treating people nicely. But I, I engaged in that argument. Whereas now, I don't even think that's a valid argument to have at all. Because I think that if people could choose to be gay or could choose to be black, that would be completely irrelevant to the conversation about how it's okay to treat that person. So just real quick, let's listen to the caller from Seattle describing that analogy just one more time because I have something to say about it. So basically, to continue that analogy, black people in America are as different from white people as black cars are from white cars, but we're treated like bicycles. Now, to be clear, I don't think that she meant 
for there to be a lot of like deep meaning in the very precise wording that she used. But I, I, I call attention to it because I think the way she talks about that analogy is sort of instructive in not only how that analogy is being, uh, you know, dissected by some people, but also sort of how we perceive not only bikes and cars, but also the races. So she referred to, you know, black and white cars and bicycles as stand-ins for the people who would actually be inside of those cars or riding that bicycle. And one of our biggest problems with racism is that people are dehumanized and thought of as lesser creatures based on their race. I mean, it wasn't surprising in the least that one of the cops in Ferguson was caught on tape calling the protesters animals, right? So this analogy, flawed as it is, can be seen in at least two ways, one of which makes the most prevalent flaw about the choice issue much worse. If the commuters whether they be in a car or on a bicycle, are stripped of their humanity entirely and are just thought of as bikes versus cars, then it makes the comparison like pretty problematic because it implies that the two are fundamentally different. And that's why the caller was saying, look, like black people aren't bicycles and white people aren't cars. It's like white cars and black cars. But that is seeing the analogy in a way that I think it was not intended at all. So whereas if the people in the comparison are allowed to keep their humanity and their vehicles are just seen as choices that they've made and not extensions of who they are at their essence, then it's easier to see that everyone deserves to be treated equally because we're all just people, but we are not treated equally because of structural imbalances, which is why I like that analogy in the first place is because it looks at racism as a structure rather than as personal opinions. So again, I totally agree that the whole analogy is flawed because no one can choose their race, but that doesn't change for me the essence of what's important about the comparison because I don't think that choice, were it an element, would be a valid element to hinge any sort of uh, you know discussion on, just like the LGBT rights. Now, all of this reminded me of a really small part in a documentary I watched just the other day on Netflix. It's called Urbanized. It's pretty good. I recommend it. And the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, was talking about this fancy uh, new bus transit system that he had helped put in place. And, you know, it has, like, separate lanes for the buses and everything. And... Uh, so this is what he had to say about people and how they should be treated in relation to the transit system. The first article in every constitution says that uh, all citizens are equal before the law. This is not just poetry. It means, for example, that a bus with 100 passengers has a right to 100 times more road space than a car with one. It's a democracy at war. You can really see that public good prevails over private interest. So just as I was trying to emphasize, he puts the value squarely on people and not on the mode of transportation those people happen to be inhabiting at that time. You know, like I inhabit white skin and I get around town in white skin. I also don't own a car and get around town on a bicycle. And so one is a choice and one isn't, but neither should be relevant in terms of how I'm treated when I go outside, yet both are relevant. I am treated differently than people who have skin color that's different than mine, and I am also treated differently than cars who inhabit the same road as me 
And both of those things are based on the structures of how our society is built. Please keep the comments coming in. Number again, 202-999-3991. And a quick reminder, I, I've sort of fallen off the wagon. Uh, haven't been cracking the whip on, on the new reviews I've been asking for. Um, I'm trying to reach a couple of goals. So there's about 750 reviews in iTunes left to go and only about 120 reviews left on Stitcher. So please, if you have like two minutes to spare, help us boost the sort of visibility of the show by uh, giving us a review, a five-star review, obviously, in iTunes and Stitcher, and help us reach those goals uh, in, in the meantime. So only you know a couple more weeks to go on that campaign, and I'm totally confident that we can make it. But you know we're getting down to the line, so go ahead and do that now. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past our own sad stories And forget who it is we're fooling